Good morning. It is great to see you this morning. It always is. So thankful for warm buildings, warm hearts, and just a, a, a wonderful opportunity to be together to glorify God. If you have your Bibles and you'd be turning to the book of Colossians, we'll finish up chapter 1. Uh, we've kind of been working our way through the, through the book, and uh, this is where we find ourselves now toward the end of the chapter few thoughts about the book. The, the, the saints are under attack, and I should have told you that a few weeks ago. As you would have received this letter if you were in Colossae, the church would have been having challenges and struggles and various things that are troubling the church. The Jews and the Gentiles are, are doing it. The knowledge seems to be the issue and being complete and Christ himself if you look at chapter 2, you'll see some of the things that Paul discusses in the book, and that kind of gives you insight into what the issues are. You'll notice there, chapter 2 and verse number 4, Paul says, I say this so that you will, uh, no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. No one will delude you. Somebody's trying to delude them with persuasive arguments. Down in verse number 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And so you can see again here another challenge, this traditions of men. Later, uh, verse number 18 he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions being, uh, he has been inflated with the cause of his fleshly mind. And so you kind of get a sense by what Paul addresses of what's challenging the church there. So it's not different much from today. Same issues face the church when it comes to living a faithful life. It's these sorts of things that people struggle with, uh, the traditions of men, uh, the self-abasement and philosophies. And oftentimes you hear it expressed in terms like, am I doing enough? Uh, am I good enough? Um, can I be complete? And can I have joy? Can I have this relationship that God wants? And then when we talk about heaven, you, you hear similar things. The results of that is, I'm not sure. No one can really know if they're going to heaven. I, I'm uncertain. I'd like to. And often it ends in hopelessness. I just don't have a lot of hope. Both within and without, culture can exacerbate and create these problems. Paul's answer to it all is Christ. The answer to all of those issues, all of those things will find the results or ultimately Christ will be the solution to all of those challenges. And that's who Paul talks about. So we pick up here in verse number 24, the first part of that verse, and Paul begins to talk about his disposition, this attitude that he has. Three things typically permeate Paul's actions and his writings. They are the Savior suffering, and the saints. That's Paul's life summed up really in those three words. And, and Jesus creates for Paul and for others a paradox, a, a seeming contradiction, the way Paul talks about his life with Christ. You can see it here in verse 24, the first part of the verse. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. 
You know, when suffering is had, typically joy is absent. They, they don't typically get linked together. Jesus is the reason that Paul can say that. I rejoice in my sufferings. That's kind of the paradox. Who would do that? Well, he's not the only writer that says it. James says it in chapter 1 and verse 1 of his book. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. John says something similar in Revelation 14 and verse 13. He says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. The word blessed and the word dead, same sentence applied to the same people. Blessed are the dead. But there's only one reason they could be blessed if they die in the Lord. That's the, the contradiction, seeming contradiction. But that's Paul's disposition, and the reason for that is Jesus. I rejoice. I'm cheerful in my sufferings. You know, it was actually Jesus who first linked these two thoughts to those who would be his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 10, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then he says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. The reason the Lord gives is, For great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Peter would say that when you suffer for the cause of Christ, you shouldn't be ashamed, but you should rather glorify God on this behalf. 1 Peter 4 and verse number 16. Paul, writing the book of Philippians, often uses the word joy and rejoice, even when he's in prison writing the letter, having suffered and been falsely accused for being put there. Throughout that book, he says he rejoiced because Christ is preached, chapter 1 and verse 18 of Philippians. He says he rejoiced because he doesn't mind being offered up on the saints' service, chapter 2 and verse 17. And in chapter 4 and verse 4, he simply says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We could enumerate other reasons for Paul's disposition. They would include Christ also suffered for us, Christ triumphed and reigned, and Christ will cause Paul and others to share in his triumph. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, We know because Christ rose, we will rise, and therefore be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. The first thing that Paul notes is his outlook. I rejoice in my sufferings. But the second thing is Paul's suffering was connected to service. You can see that. The Savior was the reason for Paul's outlook. But you'll notice the verse. The rest of verse 24 says, I rejoice now in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul's suffering, he said, it's service. It's service for Christ and it's service for his church. In fact, it was Jesus who told Ananias or that Saul, Paul, would be the one who suffered for him. Notice Acts chapter 9, when Ananias didn't want to go and he didn't want to tell Saul about the gospel, he didn't want him to obey it, and he tried to warn the Lord. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to, my, to thy saints in Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. 
But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul has been called into the service of the Lord. And Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because it's not just any suffering. It's suffering for the cause of Christ. It's suffering for God's people. And this produced joy in Paul. He didn't rejoice just in suffering. He rejoiced in suffering for the Lord. Paul was suffering for Christ. He was suffering for Christ's church. He says as much in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 22 to 33, what he calls foolishness. He enumerates some of his suffering, a sample of which begins to connect both of these things, Christ and his church. In that chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24, Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, and through many a sleepless night, and in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety or care for all the churches. You notice that Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. When you and I are reading the New Testament, this is the backdrop of the suffering. They would have had all of the challenges we face, plus this kind of suffering for the cause of Christ. We talked about it when we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, considering Jesus. You can see it in James chapter 1. We're studying 1 Peter on Sunday mornings in Bible class. You hear it there over and over and over again. Jesus would call it the great tribulation. Paul would say it's a present distress. It's that suffering for the cause of Christ. And Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It's connected to the next point. And Paul says, because it's, it's the ministry that God has given me. God's ministry, Paul's ministry was God's mystery. And so he talks about that and that and connects it to this suffering, verses 25 down to verse 27. Paul's ministry, God's mystery. And so, verse 25, he says, of this I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. When you and I are reading about Paul and the other apostles chosen by Christ, it's important to think of them in the same way you think of Moses and Joshua and the prophets, the kings, individuals chosen by God for and to help carry out this mystery. That mystery begins in eternity, according to Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. 
When sin enters into the world, that mystery begins to be put in motion and begins to be unfolded. And so what you're reading in the Scriptures is God's unfolding plan, this great mystery being revealed little by little by little over time. By the time we get to the Apostle Paul, Paul is actually telling the brethren, listen, I was made a minister of this mystery for you. It reads just like that. Jesus appeared to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, to make him an apostle, to make him a witness, Acts 26. He appeared to Paul to make him an apostle to the Gentiles. What Paul is on some level trying to tell the brethren is how important they are to God. That I was made a minister, that Jesus appeared to me after his death, burial, and resurrection to make me a minister of this mystery for you. How important are they to God? Paul is trying to get that point across to them. And he connects it to the preaching of the gospel. He says, I was made a minister, this stewardship, this God bestowed upon me this benefit to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. It is absolutely essential that we do exactly what this apostle wrote to Timothy, preach the Word. Be instant in season without season. That's the mystery, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot, dare not preach anything else but the Word of God. Verse 26, Paul says, this mystery has been revealed. In fact, he says the mystery was and has been hidden from the past, ages and generations. It's now been manifested to his saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about this mystery as well. And he says with regards to his preaching that it was God who revealed the mystery to him. In chapter 2 and about verse number 8 and 9, he says, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared them for those who love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man. Question, how would you learn the mind of God? How would you come to know what God was doing in the world? Paul says it was hidden. Hidden where? In the mind of God. And no one on earth could know what God is thinking, what God is doing. How did we come to know it? Paul says God revealed it to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit when you and I think of the Holy Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2, you should appreciate that's on the, the background of that is Joel 2, 28 to 32, and the background and all of that's connected to this mystery. It's revelation, inspiration, confirmation. It's the mystery being made known. That's what the Spirit is going to do. Paul says, we now know it. The Spirit revealed it unto us. Question, what did Paul do it when he got it? It's two different words. One word, he says here, is manifested to the saints. It was revealed to the apostles. So what happens is the apostles receive it by revelation, and then they 
teach it and they write it by inspiration and now the saints have it. Go over to Ephesians chapter 3 and notice what he says there concerning this mystery. In Ephesians chapter 3, I think we mentioned the the difference of emphasis between these two books, one, the church to Christ, Christ to the church in Colossae, the church to Christ in Ephesians. And so the emphasis of the church in Ephesians, the emphasis of the Christ in Colossians. But it often touches the same material. And so here in chapter 3, Paul is talking about this mystery. And he says of this mystery, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake, here he connects it again, for you Gentiles, that God appeared to me to make me the apostle to you, the Gentiles. If indeed, verse number two, you've heard of the stewardship, same language, stewardship of God's grace, which was given me for you, that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, by referring to this, he says, when you read, you may understand my knowledge, my insight in the mystery of Christ. The apostles received the Word of God by revelation. They preached it. They wrote it. When the saints was manifested to them, they now could understand. It really is the emphasis and the heart of the book, the refutation of the errors attacking the church. None of them could provide the things that Jesus alone could provide, the forgiveness of sins, the ability to justify, to make one complete as he ought to be, and ultimately to give one hope. Because all of the above is true, Paul then continues his thoughts and makes three significant and essential points about Jesus. He says in verse 27, this mystery culminates in Christ. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 6, he says a very similar thing by way of the explanation of the mystery. He says to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and of the same body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. One of the things that's challenging and troubling the early church is the Jews with Judaism in the background, with the temple still standing, the priests still offering, with all of the trappings of the law of Moses in, in full effect, the church looks to be an apostasy from the truth of God. And so the Jews keep troubling the church by saying, you're not good enough. You're never going to be. What you need to do is be circumcised and come through Moses. You cannot get there without us. And Paul keeps saying, no, it's Christ. It's Christ, it's Christ, and it's only Christ. And so he says to the saints here, Christ in you. The end of this mystery is Christ reconciling Gentiles and Jews into one body. Christ in you is your only hope of glory. Three points then in verses 28 that Paul makes concerning Christ. Number one, Paul says, whom we preach, whom we proclaim. What does Paul do in preaching? He preaches Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the subject of Paul's preaching. You go around the book of Acts, start in chapter 13 when Paul starts preaching, and listen to the sermons. Follow him along as he continually talks about the good news of Jesus Christ. To the Corinthian brethren, Paul said, when I came to you, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ is the subject of Paul's preaching. Christ is the person of Paul's preaching. And he's already addressed why in this very book. Go back up to verse number 13 and listen to what he says about Christ. He says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you were to read Ephesians chapter 1, you'd find similar language that God purposed and planned and prepared. And at verse 7 of chapter 1, that Christ is the one in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. Throughout the New Testament, it will and only be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach. Well, that's, that's who Paul preaches. What does Paul hope to accomplish in his preaching? The second part of verse 28, Paul says two things. He says, first of all, what he does in preaching is he preaches Christ, and when he does, he says, warning every man. Warning every man. Preaching, then, on some level is a warning. It is a plea, it is an exhortation, it is a sounding, an alarm being set forth. Come to Jesus, that's the warning. Why warn? Go back earlier in the chapter and look at verse number 3. Paul says, we give thanks to God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of the truth of the gospel. It was Jesus who said, go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Why does one need to hear the gospel? Because it's the only hope a person has of having their sins forgiven and being reconciled to God. The only hope is the gospel. And so in preaching, there is a warning. Come to Jesus before it's too late. In Acts chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, the apostle Paul is preaching. And what he runs into are individuals who are rejecting the message, rejecting the warning. And notice Paul's language to them in light of their actions. This is Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. Paul says, the next Sabbath day, Luke records, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. You'd have to go all the way back to verse 1 to get the whole of that context. The apostle Paul has done what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. He's walked the Jews through their history, and he's brought them down again, as Stephen did, to Jesus. The Jews are in the process of rejecting that. The Gentiles are very delighted to hear it because, as we've noted, chapter 3 of Ephesians, the Gentiles are part of the mystery. And it would be amazing to them to have in their mind, maybe for the first time, God had us in mind. 
We gave up God a long time ago. And as we read in Romans 1, God gave them up, gave them up, gave them over. Imagine the Gentiles hearing God's mystery included you all along. The Jews are in the process of rejecting it. Verse 44, the Sabbath day, the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. You remember Romans 1, 16 and 17, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is much of the emphasis of the gospel accounts to the Jew first. Eventually, though, the mystery did include the Gentiles. And so Paul says here, it was necessary for it to come to you first. But note their reaction to it and Paul's subsequent words. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Well, if you were to read the rest of this chapter, the Gentiles are eager to hear it. But what's Paul doing He's warning the Jews, if you reject the gospel, if you reject Jesus, you will judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. There's only one thing that can give you eternal life, and that's Jesus, and that's the gospel. To reject that, you are being warned in preaching. Paul doesn't just warn the Jews, though. Go over to Acts chapter 17, and you'll hear him warn the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 17, he begins preaching there in verse 22. They are very religious, Paul says. I notice your inscriptions, and he begins to talk about the God they don't know, the God that made the world and all things that are therein. That Paul says he does not dwell in temples made by hands, and he doesn't need anything. This God is different than your God's. He says, this is the God that made everything, and he made you. And the purpose and the reason he made you is so you would seek him and find him so you can go to heaven, verse 27. He says he's not silver and gold or stone or art, and neither are you. And since you're his offspring, you shouldn't think of him that way. You're an eternal spirit, and so is he. But he begins to warn near the end in verse number 30. He says, therefore, the times of this ignorance God overlooked. What ignorance? The very ignorance that he's discussing, this idolatry, this casting God off and going your own way. The times of that God overlooked. But Paul goes on to say, now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why do you need to repent? What are you being warned about? Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? The very one you're rejecting. If you reject Jesus, Jesus will be your Savior today, and he will be your judge in eternity. The very one you're rejecting will judge you. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What are we doing in preaching? Warning. It is not designed to make you feel good in your sins. It's not designed to tell you that you're okay, and I'm okay, and we're all okay. In sin, none of us are okay. In sin, we all need Jesus, and we're being warned. 
Paul says the second thing is warning every man, and then he says, and teaching every man. Well, what would we teach? Better yet, who would we teach? We keep on teaching Christ. What happens to people after they obey the gospel? They've heeded the warning. That's wonderful. God bless you. Thank God. You're no longer in darkness. You're now in light. You've accepted the warning. You've obeyed the gospel. What now? You should be being taught Jesus. Salvation leads to sanctification. Christians are to be holy, 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, for he is holy. We are to live purified lives, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Lives that bring glory to God, Matthew 5 and verse number 16. Lives that are diligent to show ourselves approved, 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 19. Lives that add to our faith, knowledge and temperance and patience and brotherly kindness and charity. Those things are to be taught. Who's the example? Jesus. Whose mind should you have? Jesus. Whose footsteps should you walk in? Jesus. We warn every man, and then we teach every man. We should be growing and maturing in Jesus. Paul says, whom we preach? Jesus. What do we, we warn and we teach? And then thirdly, he says, why do we preach Christ? The end of verse number 28, so that, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Christ is the one who makes us as we ought to be. He justifies us. God, through Christ, justifies. Having been justified, Christ is the one who teaches us how to live. We follow in his footsteps. Christ is the one in the end who, when that's done, presents us to the Father as finished, mature, complete, because of who he is and because of what he has done. He is singular and the only one who can. Go back earlier in the chapter and read again with me verse number 15 following. Paul says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creation, Creature, for by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rules or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have place in everything. Through him you are reconciled to himself gives you peace through his blood, Christ is the only one who can make us complete. Amen. Let's make some application this morning as we have time. Christ, Paul says, in you, the hope of glory. When seeking to make application to Scripture, the first application has to be to the saints who receive the letter. And so our questions become, what does the Bible teach? What did it teach to those who received the letter first? And then, what does it teach to us? One of the things that the Bible does is it uses words, sometimes the same word, the same concept, but it uses it in two different ways. 
the first application to these saints, I'm going to suggest to you that it has to do with the glory of the church in the first century. When would they be glorified? When would the church be glorified? I'm going to suggest to you that it will be when Judaism is destroyed. The saints are suffering at the hands of the Judaizers, and at some point, they are struggling to know in the first century who belongs to God. And the Jews keep saying, it's us, it's us, it's us. And the Gentiles inside of the body are struggling. Even the Jewish saints in the body are struggling. The saints will shine forth as God's chosen people. When? When Judaism is destroyed. It will be very obvious who the people of the Lord are when there is no more of the trappings of Judaism. This glory of which Paul speaks will be the church triumphant. Consider what he says in chapter 3. Imagine if you were the one receiving this letter. After all of the things written in chapters 1 and chapter 2, you would come to this section and you would read these words. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice verse number four. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I say it has to mean something to them because of the words when, then, and you. They're the ones being challenged. When will it be over? When Christ is manifest. When will Christ be manifest or revealed? When Jerusalem is destroyed. What will happen then? Then you will be revealed with him in glory. When Christ is made manifest, there will be no more doubt, no more questions, and no more issues for the Lord's church. Now, I'm going to urge that's what it means there in the first century to those saints, but the same language, one could argue, is used about us eternally. And again, I wouldn't disagree. It's the same language. When will you and I be glorified? What is our hope of glory? Who is our hope of glory? In fact, we may have already read it. Go back to chapter 1 again. And notice what he says there in verse number 3. We read this, but listen to it again. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Peter talks about our hope being laid up in heaven as well, in which you previously heard of in the word of truth of the gospel. Paul says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Ephesian letter, he would say, you in Christ is the hope of glory. It's interesting that he frames it in those words. Since Christ in you is the hope of glory, here's the question. How does Christ get in you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does he get there? Go over to Ephesians chapter 3 and listen to what Paul says. And I suggest to you again, it's both ways. It's Christ in you and it's you in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 17, Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts 
through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend while with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You hear the word complete in Colossians, filled up to the fullness. How do you do that? Christ in you. How did he get there? By faith. What would be the message to get Christ in you? The gospel person hears the gospel, they obey the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is your hope of glory? Go over to chapter 2 and listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 11, Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, in that state having no hope and without God in the world. Verse number 13 says, but now in Christ. Where are they? They're in Christ. Where's Christ? Christ is in them. How did he get there? By faith he dwells in you. What made that possible? The gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when you ask Christians, do you have hope? You ask Christians, are you going to heaven? And Christians began to waffle, maybe move their feet backward and forward. Maybe the head goes down. Maybe they begin to rub their brow. Maybe they contemplate eternity. And maybe in their mind, they start grabbing for any reason and all the reasons why. And you start to hear things like, well, I don't know. What's happening to that person? What's going on in their mind? They're, they're misunderstanding. What gives them this hope? It's not our works. It's not the works that these Jews are trying to thrust upon the Gentile brethren, the Jewish brethren. It's not that. It's not the traditions of men. It's not the philosophies of men. It's not self-abasement. I'm going to do this to make sure I don't. It's not that. What is it? Paul points to one singular person. What is my hope in the first century, in the 21st century, and beyond? What is my hope? It is Christ in you, and you in Christ. If one is in Christ and Christ is in him, then that's the hope of glory. It also means without him, there simply is no hope. There is nothing and no one else we need other than Christ. That's Paul's point to the brethren. In chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he would say, and you are complete in him. Christ is the word made flesh. Matthew says, God with us. Christ is the fulfillment of God's mystery, the eternal mystery, the divine mystery, the manifold wisdom of God. Christ is the only hope of ones to have glory, the only way to the Father, the only way to heaven, the only one who can cleanse from sin. Christ is the reason. Paul could joy in suffering, and Christ was who he preached. This chapter ends by Paul saying Christ was his reason and purpose and goal. He says, for this purpose I labor. 
striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It's that that leads him into chapter 2, where he discusses why all of those other things will fail. And from there, he'll spring into chapter 3 and point them heavenward again to Christ. Friends, what's your hope? If you're not a Christian, you know it's not because we said it. It's because the Bible says it. But without Christ, you simply have no hope. If Jesus is your hope of glory, friends, don't get to heaven. Don't get to eternity, rather, without Jesus. Your only hope of eternal life is Christ. The way to get into Christ and the way to get Christ into you is by his gospel. And so we invite, as he taught us to do, we invite you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24, it was Jesus who said, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. Where I am, you cannot come. It was Jesus who said a person has to repent, change their heart, change their mind about him, about the direction of their life, and give their life to him. They have to repent. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, if you don't repent, you'll perish. You have to confess his name, Matthew 10, 32, John 9. It's to say the same thing, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you have to be baptized, immersed in water, with him for the forgiveness of your sins. Romans 6, 3 through 5, Acts 22, 16, Acts 2, 38, and a host of other passages. The Bible clearly teaches that the gospel is the death the burial, and the resurrection. And in baptism, we emulate just what he did. And without that, and friends, you cannot have Christ in you. And you cannot be in Christ. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we beg you this morning to come to Jesus before it's eternally too late. That's the warning. If you have obeyed the gospel, and friends, let's live for Jesus. You know, in chapter 3 of this book, Paul will say, Christ is our life. And he needs to be that for every one of us. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.